Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, good evening, and we assemble again to learn about Rashi, and we are towards the end of the story of the Akedah. My hope is to get to the end of the Akedah tonight. So, it's Perak Kafet Pasuk Yud Gimel. So the story so far is that Abraham was asked to apparently sacrifice his son. It turns out that's not what Hashem actually said. Um, and Abraham passed the test. He stretched out his hand. He stretched out the knife to slaughter his son. And at that point, in Pasuk Yud Aleph, a malach of Hashem called from Shemayim to say, uh, in Pasuk Yud Bet, Alta Asloma And it's worth pointing out, just revisiting what Rashi said in Yud Bet, um, because and you bet there was a problem in the text, namely, the Malach said, Don't stretch out your hand and don't do anything. So at that point, Rashi said, there's like the other half of the conversation, as Rashi often does, that uh, Hashem, uh, sorry, Abraham, when he heard, don't stretch out your hand, said, well, at least I'll make a little bit of a wound and draw a little bit of blood to like fulfill something. To which the Malach replied, don't do anything at all. Or as Rashi puts it, don't make a blemish. So that is relevant because what we're going to see now in Pasuk Yud Gimel, which goes like this. Abraham et Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw, and they behold a ram, achar, which we'll leave untranslated for a moment, which was caught in the svach. I love that word in Hebrew because it's always translated as thicket. And this is the only place we ever use the word thicket, I believe. Um, although Rashi translates it differently, as we will see in a minute. Bukaranov, by its horns. Vayelach Abraham, Abraham went, and he took the ram, and he offered it up as a burnt offering. Tachat Bano, we'll leave the word tachat. Uh, untranslated for a moment. So what does Rashi say? By the way, this is not what I'm about to say, it's not directly Rashi, but this is very significant. What Abraham does at this point is very important. Um, if you look at Pasuk Yud Atet Zayin, so again, this isn't Rashi, and I don't think Rashi goes in this derech that I'm about to expound, but if you compare Tet Zayin to Yud Bet, so Yud, uh, let's go back to Yud Bet. Um, don't do anything. Because now I know that you are God-fearing. You didn't hold back your son, your only son, from me. And then in Tet Zion, uh, because you have done this thing, and you haven't hold back your son, your only son. So why does Hashem say twice, you've been a really good guy, you haven't held back your son? Because uh, in Tet Zion, there's something added. In Tet Zion, it says, Now you could read that as you've done this thing, i.e. referring to the whole Akeda story. Or you could be more precise. And there is somebody, I forget whom, but I don't make this up, one of the Mephoshim, um, says what I'm about to say. I think it might be the Sephora, uh, but I may be wrong, who says, Asita et you've done something else. You've done this thing and you haven't held back your son. So what is this thing? What's changed between Yudbet and Tetzayim? What is et of the Bahazer? 
So one could say, and as I say, somebody does say, it's offering the ram. Offering the ram is very significant. And uh, I, I say that as a little bit of a background to what Rashi's about to say. So Hashem, based on what I'm now saying about Ted Zion, Hashem says, not only have you passed the test of the Akedah, but you did something else as well. You offered up the ram. That was like really special. Now let's try and understand why that might be really special. So let's now go to Rashi on Yud Gimel. The first thing he says is, behold a ram. It was prepared for this from the six days of creation. So we know in Pirkei Avot, in the fifth parak, it lists 10 things that were created in twilight at the end of the sixth day of creation. And one of them was the ram of Abraham. Now, does that mean this ram is two and a half thousand years old? Not necessarily. But it means that there was a plan in creation at the very beginning that this ram would be here. It wasn't a random ram. Now, why does Rashi say that? I would suggest two reasons. So there's a technical reason that Avram, as we know, spoiler alert, is going to offer up this ram. So what gives him the right to do so? Maybe it's somebody's ram. How can Avraham Avinu, who is so good at respecting you know, rules and not uh, respecting other people's property, how can Avraham Avinu like take a random ram and offer it up? Maybe it's somebody else's ram. So Rashi's answered that by saying, <laughs> it wasn't just any old ram. It was a special ram designated as such since the beginning of creation. Um, you can also say, just uh, by the way, if it was there from the beginning of creation, um, then this is not a type of sacrifice which comes to atone for a sin. So uh, let, let me uh, expand on this idea. So there's basically two types of sacrifices that we might bring in the time when we bring sacrifices. One is a sin offering, a which is a, some sort of kapara, some sort of atonement. You do something wrong, you bring a sin offering, and that somehow puts it right, as long as you have the right intention. But there's another type of offering, which is brought just because you want to give an offering to Hashem. Um, usually an Ola, but that, there are Olot which come as a Kapara, so that's not a general rule. But uh, the beginning of Vayikra, where it talks about sacrifices, the first sacrifices it talks about is a free will, voluntary offering. You just want to give a present to Hashem. You just want to get close to Hashem. So the question is, what is the Akeda and what is the replacement for the Akeda, which is the Ram, which are... Spoiled what's coming next in Rashi, but Rashi's about to say, but the ram is, in, he offers the ram instead of offering up his son. So if it was there since the dawn of time, since before anything happened, then we can rule out the possibility that the whole Akeda stroke ram business was a kapara, was an atonement. It wasn't an atonement. Couldn't, sorry, couldn't it just be set aside for him to atone? Well, or was that saying that he was then forced to sin? From the beginning? I suppose it's possible. Um, but I, I would suggest not. I would suggest that if it's there from before anyone existed, let alone anyone sinned, it's the non-sinning type of offering. And by the way, this is contrary to the Rashbam, for instance, um, who says that the Akedah was a punishment. It was a punishment, interestingly enough, for, and there's a long Rashbam, which is very rare, and so quite a Midrashic Rashbam, which is also very rare, the beginning of the Perak, the Rashbam says the Akedah was a response to Abraham making the Brit with Avimelech. And what was the problem with the Brit with Avimelech? So the Midrash says that the Brit with Avimelech included giving Avimelech the keys to Yerushalayim. Um, and so the Rashbam comes out very strongly against 
giving back land for peace, uh, to put it into contemporary terms, uh, and says the Akedah was a punishment. So I'm not saying that Rashi is responding to the Rashbam, which would be anachronistic anyway, but I think you can say that if this ram was Mukhan Misheshit Mebreshit, it indicates further that this was not a response to anything wrong that Abraham had done. Now, but what is the textual reason why Rashi says this? And uh, it seems to be because of the word hine. So the word hine is an interesting word. How do we translate it? Behold. What does that mean? Who, who uses behold in their normal parlance? Uh, unless you speak very uh, absurdly pompous like I sometimes do. Um, you don't say, oh, look, behold, the newspaper has arrived. <laughs> uh, we don't do that. What does it mean? So uh, that's a good question. And linguistically and textually, that is an important question. Um, but I would think here is it's saying it's not just any old ram. It's not just a random occurrence. It's something special. It's something significant. And in this case, it's something previously designated. I don't think you can translate every hine in the Chumash as it's been previously designated, but I think you can say it's, it's special. It, it leads to a particular conclusion. And in this case, the particular conclusion is hine ayo, behold the ram, as if it was a ram that's been previously designated. And that's exactly what Rashi says. And then Rashi has an interesting thing to say on the word achar. Now, what is the word achar? Uh, why does Rashi need to say this? That is, in this case, a very simple question to answer because the word achar is like, it's in the wrong place. And, and, and what does it mean? Vihine ayel achar. Now, first of all, it's not acher which would make a little bit more sense, but it's not that word. Ayel acher, at least you could like read the passage, behold, there's another ram. It wouldn't make sense because it, there, isn't a, there isn't a second ram. Uh, okay, that's stretching it a bit, but okay. But anyway, it doesn't work because it's the wrong word. Yep. It's achar. Now, what does achar mean? It means after. So behold, there's a ram after. After what? So Rashi says after what? So on the words achar, after the Malach said to him, don't stretch out your hand. In other words, after the Malach said, don't shecht Yitzchak. And we also know, and I think Rashi's alluding to this by just the beginning of the conversation, that in Yudbet, and this is why I reviewed it, the Malach said, don't, not only don't stretch out your hand, but the Malach also said, and we knew from Rashi there that Abraham was, in a sense, frustrated that he wasn't actually going to do anything at the end of the day. So now Rashi says, <laughs> Then Abraham saw it, that it was caught. And that's what the Targum says, Abraham yat batar elim. Abraham lifted up his eyes after this. So the Targum has added, after the word achar, he's added the Aramaic equivalent of this. So now we understand it means after this, after the previous event. So the previous event in the previous Pasuk was the Malach saying, don't do anything. And now we understand achar means after that. That still leads to two questions. Number one, why do we need to be told after that? Normally, if event A is written in one passage and event B is written in the next passage, we can assume that event B took place, takes place after event A. After all, otherwise, you know, we'd have to have achar in every single passage and every single clause. Point, question one. Question two, why is it in the wrong place? 
it should be at the beginning. Achar, or as Targum puts it, Achar Zeh, Vayisa Abraham Etenav, Abraham lifted up his eyes. So um, I think the best answer is to say that Rashi is saying, but the Pasuk is saying, that it's stressing that the lifting up his eyes and seeing the ram is a direct consequence of what the Malach said. It's a response to the Malach saying, don't do anything. So as a consequence, what happens next? He lifts up his eyes and he says, and then he sees it. Couldn't it be, the, the shadow of the Pasuk seems to say, he sees it, it's like he's looking down the Yitzchak, the ram gets itself caught in the thick, in like the bushes, and then he looks up, because it says, after it was caught. After it was caught. So I feel like it might be more natural than like he was dealing with Yitzchak. He hears something gets caught and looks. So is Rashi like responding to that? I think so. I think Rashi is saying, I, I, I'm reading into Rashi, yes. but I think I'm entitled to. And I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, no, I, A, because one should read into Rashi, and B, because this is what the portion said that it, he's connecting more precisely that this is a reaction of Abraham to what the Malach said. Okay, by the way, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll reveal a little bit. Why, according to my reading of Tetzayin, is it such a big deal that he offers the, offers the ram? And the answer is this. Who told him to offer his son? I mean, oh, he thought someone told him to offer his son. Why did he offer up his son? Why was he prepared to offer up his son? Because Hashem told him to, okay? That's an easy answer. But who told him to offer up the ram? Nobody. He realized for himself that was the right thing to do. And that, to me, is what Hashem means in Tet Zion. When you've done this thing and you didn't hold back your son. So holding back your son is an amazing thing. Of course, I don't want to downplay that. But at the end of the day, he did what Hashem told him to do. In the case of the ram, he lifted up his eyes and he saw for himself. By the way, there's a lot of parallels between this parak and the previous parak in Kaf Aleph, where Abraham has to, in a sense, sacrifice his other son, Ishmael, sends him out into the desert with insufficient, uh, what well, turns out to be insufficient water. And um, uh, he gets ill and the water runs out. And uh, his mother, the mother of Ishmael, Ai Hagar, is very upset. And Hashem hears the cries of, of Hagar. And then we have Kaf Aleph Yutet. If you look at Kaf Aleph Yutet. So in all the parallels between, as it were, the near sacrifice of Yishmael and the near sacrifice of Yitzchak, Kaf Aleph Yutet is the parallel to Kafet Yud Gimel. What's the difference? Yifkach Elokim et Eneha. Hashem opened her eyes. Whereas Abraham doesn't need help. Abraham, Vayisa Abraham et Enav. Abraham lifted up his own eyes and worked out for himself what to do. Okay, so back to the Rashi. Um, then there's words in brackets, um, which may or may not be part of Rashi. In my book, it says, Sfarim Acherim, Lefiha Agada, other versions according to the Agada, Achar Kol Divrei Hamalach, Vahashchina, Vahachar Ta'anotav Shal Abraham. Um, it's saying the same thing. It's saying after all the words of the Malach and the words of Hashem and, and the Tainas, the uh, complaints of Abraham, um, where Abraham said, I didn't understand how it was all going to work out. There were contradictory instructions. And Abraham said, uh, at least let me do something. Let me uh, wound him in some way, which is what he now, well, 
but we'll see what he goes on to do. Then Rashi says on the word basabach, ilan, a tree. And I'm going to nervously say this is a very straightforward Rashi. What does the word sabach mean? Um, it's not a word that occurs often in Chumash. It does occur in Tanakh. Uh, where did I see it? Tehillim ayin dalad hey, if you want to look there. But Rashi says it's a tree. Um, those who translate Rashi want to say branches of a tree. Tehillim ayin dalad hey. Bukharanav, it's caught in the tree. I prefer thicket, by its horns, says Rashi, Shahayarat el Abraham, it was running to Abraham, the Hasatan Sofcho, the Satan got it caught, same word as Savach, Uma Arvavo, the Ilonot, and got it mixed up in the trees. So we have an extra Midrashic detail. Um, one answer to why Rashi has to say this is a simple. Um, Matthias, what's the English of Matthias? Um, reality that why would a ram get caught, not just by one horn, but by both its horns? Now, I'm not an expert on ram behavior, but apparently you wouldn't expect the ram to run headlong into a bush. It might run past the bush, in which case one of its horns will get caught. But this is what the Mizrahi says. Why would both of its horns get caught? Only if somebody caught it and stuck it in the bush. Um, perhaps a better answer is the grammar of the word ne'echaz. So ne'echaz is nifal, it has been caught, implying that something else caught it. Um, and so that either ones are explained by the satan pushed it into the bush. Now, by the way, let's remember what the satan is. The satan is not Satan, the satan is a malach who is entirely um, working for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And what does the satan do? Well, the son does a number of things. He makes complaints and he uh, acts as a prosecutor, but he also makes it hard for Abraham to do the right thing, not to stop him doing the right thing, but to give extra challenge. So there's a, a long midrash. Rashi doesn't bring this. It's not Rashi, but the Satan um, approached Abraham on the journey on the three days and appeared like a old man and said, what a crazy thing you're going to do. And then he goes to Yitzchak and he appears like a young man and says, what a crazy thing you're going to do. And it's not hard to suggest, but the Satan appearing like the old man is like the inner voice inside Abraham's head. And the Satan appearing like the young man is the inner voice inside Yitzchak's head. And then it, the Satan fails to persuade Abraham or Yitzchak and then turns himself into a river, which Abraham finds hard to navigate, but Abraham nevertheless pushes through. Um, and the message is the Satan tries to increase the nature of the test by making things hard, but that's not that he wants the test not to, he doesn't, he's not trying to um, make Abraham fail. And I think it's, it's an important point to understand. He's trying to make it more of a challenge for Abraham to succeed. And I think he's doing the same thing here. Given that, what I think Rashi is saying, what I'm saying, that this offering the ram is a crucial part of Abraham's demonstration of him doing the right thing, let's say. It's more than passing the test. It's like passing the test Plus, um, so the Satan tries to say that the uh, tries to, to stop the, the ram going straight to Abraham. So Abraham's going to have to like deviate and go to where the ram is rather than the ram coming to Abraham. So it's like one more reason for Abraham to say, all right, I won't bother. But he does bother. Larger question that you can say is out of the scope. But why, if God sets his own test, is he also sending a malach to make the test harder? Why wouldn't he just make the test difficult in a sense? Or is the Satan more like 
a psychological attack on Abraham. Well, it's I, I don't see those two as um, as uh, um, mutually exclusive. Um, I think remember the Satan is an agent of Hashem. So when what the Satan does is Hashem doing it. So this is just a test, I guess. Yes, I think it's just a test. Okay. okay, but it's it's if you like personified or anthropomorphized as the Satan doing it. Yeah. Okay. Then Rashi says on the words tachat v'no, and here Rashi, it's interesting. Rashi spells out the question in a very explicit way. He's quoting the words of the midrash, which does the same. I haven't got an answer for why he spells out the question so explicitly, but he says like this: since the Pasuk says that he offered it up, the ram, as a burnt offering, the, the Pasuk isn't lacking anything. In other words, it could have stopped at that point. It could have said, full stop. So continues Rashi, what is meant by So as I say, I don't know why Rashi here chooses to spell out his question so clearly, but his question is explicitly, you don't need the words tachat bano, so why does it come to say tachat bano? And the answer is al kol avodah sha'asa mimenu, on each part of the sacrificial procedure that he did for the ram, hayamit palel, he davened va'omar, and he said, yehi ratzon shetehei zu ke'ilu hi asuya bavini, may it be your will, that it's as if I did it to my son. Ke'ilu b'ni shachut, as if my son has been shechted. Ke'ilu domo zaruk, as if my son's blood has been spilt. Ke'ilu hu mufshat, as if my son has been skinned, pardon the imagery. Ke'ilu hu niktar, as if my son has been burnt as katoret, v'na'aset deshen, and has turned into ash. Remember that, by the way, because I'm going to refer back to that in a little while. But, so how do you understand the word tachat? Tachat is an interesting word, sometimes translated as understood. Indeed, there is a midrash that says he like did the ram under Yitzchak, puts the ram on the altar and puts Yitzchak on top of the altar. That's a, if you like, the literal, the mashma'ut, more than literal, the mashma'ut meaning of the word tachat. But Rashi doesn't translate tachat like that. He translates tachat as instead of. So here the word tachat means instead of. But what Rashi is saying is the word in the passage, tachat bano, means the act of killing the ram and every detail he did to the ram was instead of doing it to his son. In fact, you can go a little bit further, as if he did it to his son. So Avram Davand doesn't say whether the prayer was accepted, but probably was, that he would then get the zuchut, if you like, for doing what to the ram, what he was originally thought he was commanded to do to his son, bit by bit. And that's why you can see going back to the beginning of Rashi on Yud Gimel, this was a response to what the Malach said and to what Avraham said to the Malach. According to Rashi and Yud Bet, Avraham said to the Malach, please let me do something. And he did, because he worked out what the ram gave him that opportunity to do. And by the way, okay, I don't want to get into the whole question of the test and human sacrifice. Uh, someone to say that the whole story of the Akedah was don't do human sacrifice. I think that's a bit too simplistic, but I think it's probably part of the story of the Akeda. We don't do human sacrifice, obviously, but we do do other sacrifice. Now, right now we don't, but I think it's important to understand that this is a temporary aberration in normative Jewish practice. Normative, normative Jewish practice is we have a Bet Midash and we have a, 
uh, and we have the avoda and we do sacrifices. And if we, for instance, as I said earlier, if we do something wrong under some circumstances, we bring a kapara, we bring an animal and that becomes a sacrifice. And, and the idea of what that achieves, um, I don't want to be too simplistic. I don't want to say the answer is just one line, but an answer is this one line. That when you bring an animal as a sacrifice, um, there is an idea, to quote another phrase, of there but for the grace of God go I. That the, per the animal on the altar, it represents I should be on the altar. And as a, as a great chesed, Hashem said, all right, I will, will take an animal rather than you. But also, and to get sort of a bit more Hirschian about it, um, the, the fact of offering an animal instead of us has a tremendous educational lesson. And when you see the animal on the altar and you think, wow, that's what happened to it. That's really what I deserved because I, I mucked up. I, I did something wrong. And really, it should be me there on the altar. That's a very, very powerful educational message. And I think it comes out from here, which is, is one of our prototypes of sacrifices. This isn't the first sacrifice in the Chumash, but it, it's a big one, as we will see soon. And, and the message of this part of, of the Rashi, of, of, which comes from the Midrash, is that it's not Avram saying as if I, Avraham, on the altar, but it's as if another person is on the altar. So instead of sacrificing Yitzchak, I'm sacrificing a ram, and it's almost the same thing. And that's his tefillah. His tefillah it should be counted as the same thing. Okay, now we move on to Pasuk Yud Dalet. Vayikra Avraham Shem Hamakom Hahu. Abraham called the name of that place Hashem Yireh, um, which I, well, it's something to do with Hashem seeing. Asher Ye'omer Hayom, which will be said today, Bahar Hashem Yireh, in the mountain of God, it will be seen. Okay, something a little bit hard to understand. There's a bit of seeing, there's a naming of the place. Um, at this point, I'll just mention a beautiful midrash which is brought down by Rashi, but I couldn't find the place where, somewhere in, in Nach. But anyway, it's a quite well-known Midrash that Abraham calls this place Yireh. But it's already had a name. Where, how did it have a name? Shalem. Uh, Shalem. Wow, when was it called Shalem? Malkitzedek Melech Shalem came to meet Abraham after the war of the five kings. And it was... In Perak Yud Dalad, Pasuk Yud Chet, Yud Dalad Yud Chet, Umaki Sedek Melech Shalem. And Rashi there doesn't say where Shalem is, but the Midrash says Shalem was Yerushalayim. What we have is somebody called Malki Sedek calls it Shalem. Abraham calls the same place Yeru or Yireh. And Hashem says, the Midrash said, what am I going to do? It's like, you know, the mother-in-law gives me two ties. For Which one do I wear? Um, if I call it Shalem, Abraham will get upset. If I call it Yireh, Shame will get upset. Who is Shame, by the way? Sorry, who is Maki Sedek? Maki Sedek is Shame, son of uh, Noah. So what does Hashem do? He combines the two names and calls it Yerushalayim. I did see, actually, by the way. Again, sorry, I'm deviating from Rashi, but this is worth it. That Noah, uh, after the flood, his job was to establish a society that ran smoothly. That's what the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach are all about. That um, there should be, and one of the Sheva Mitzvah is uh, setting up a legal system, so there should be peaceful society. So Shem, son of Noach, calls the city Shalem, peace. Avraham's job is to go further. Avraham is to teach people about Hashem, to tell them that Hashem will see. 
So he calls it Yireh. And then Hashem puts the two together. Anyway, what exactly is this Hashem Yireh? Asher Ya'omer Hayom Baha Hashem Yireh. So Rashi says, Hashem Yireh. Pshuto Katargumo. The simple meaning is like the Targum. And he then paraphrases the Targum by saying the following. So the following words are Hebrew, they're not Aramaic, but they're Rashi's version of what the Targum is saying. Hashem Yivchar, Hashem will choose the Yireh Lo and will show for himself et hamakom hazeh, this place, lahashrot bo shechinato, to make his shechina dwell there, ulahakriv kan korbanot, and to offer their korbanot. By the way, sorry, I mean, I've been talking about Yerushalayim. Where is this whole happening? Har Habayit. Okay, it's the place where the Bet Migdash is later built. It's the place where we go today. Uh, we don't go on Har Habayit itself, well, most of us don't, um, but it's the place still where it is the, the most uh, greatest manifestation of Hashem Shechina in the entire world. It's the place, Lahashrot Bo Shechina Tov, that Hashem chose to make his Shechina dwell there. So Hashem Yireh is Hashem will see for himself, I Hashem will choose for himself. So that's why Rashi puts the word Hashem Yivchar, Hashem will choose this place to put his Shechina. I just want to say, um, Rashi, when he says it's Targumbo, is not being precise for two reasons. First of all, the uh, introduction of the Targum Onkelos is quite different. In the Hebrew, we have the Yikra Avraham Shem Amakomahu. Avraham called the name of the place. In the Targum, Upalach Utsvatsali Avraham Taman, Avraham did the Avoda and prayed there, but Atrahahu in that place, but Amar, and he said, Kadam Hashem, before Hashem, Hacha Yohon Palchan Daraya, here will be the service of future generations. So, first of all, Unculus, um, instead of saying Abraham called it, it's Abraham's Tefillah. Abraham Dabon, that it should be designated as a place. And Rashi doesn't bring that at all. And secondly, as I say, uh, Rashi paraphrases, and it seems to me really quite extensively, paraphrases the words of the Targum and sort of just gives you the gist of what the Targum is saying. Did you, you wanted to add it? Yeah, I was wondering about that is, does he, he normally quotes the Targum, does he normally quote him in Aramaic? Sometimes. He's not uh, I, I'm going to say he's not consistent. I don't mean that as uncritical. It means I'm not quite sure what the precise pattern is. Because I'm, my wa I'm wondering if his Rashi is doing this off by heart of Tyrone, and if this point he just didn't remember the exact, not to to to. Oh, I I, I suspect his name. But I do. This time he doesn't know it off by heart, but normally he does. I do a sharp and take a breath there, not because I just uh, I, you know, I regard Rashi as infallible, and I'm not saying that, um, but it's unlikely that he would like, you know, not had that particular pasuk of the Targum available because he obviously has the rest of the text. I just think it's unlikely. Okay. Um, and I think he, he, he just wants to tell you the gist of what the Targum says. But the basic idea, he's really translates the word Yireh and he translates it as Yivchar Yireh. He will choose, and then he puts in the same word just to you know, reference back, he will choose for himself that this place will be the place for his you know. And then he says, now, what does it mean it will say today? The obvious question is, when's today? Does it mean when Abraham was there? Does it mean when Moshe wrote the Torah? What does it mean? So Rashi says, that it will be said 
in the days of, I'm going to add the word, future generations about it. There, Hashem is seen to his people. And I'll come back to that a little bit, but let's go on to the next part because Rashi explains this idea about Hayom. When it says Hayom, says Rashi, it means Hayomim Ha'atidim, future days. Kumo Ad Hayom Hamikra. Every place you find Ad Hayom Hazer until this day, which by the way is not very common, but wherever you find it, that's what it means. Shakal Hadorot Habaim, all future generations. Hakorim et hamakra hazer. When they read this verse, Omrim, they will say, Ad hayom hazer, al hayom omdimbo, on the day in which they are standing. So we're reading this on the 19th of Tevet, Tovshin Pei Aleph. And therefore, hayom for us means the 19th of Tevet, Tovshin Pei Aleph. That's what it means. So it's telling us that Ad hayomah hayom. On this occasion, and every occasion where you see words like that, it means up to the time you're reading it. It's for all time. It's a, it's a prophecy that will apply at all times. So it doesn't mean Moshe's time. It doesn't mean Abraham's time. It means the time of the reader. Rashi's explaining what it means. Now, he just sort of mentioned um, the second part of Abraham's statement, because Abraham said two things. Um, he called the name of the place Hashem Yireh, and then he said, and people will say, Bahar Hashem Yera'er. So what does it mean, Bahar Hashem Yera'er? Um, yes, sorry. Um, going back a little bit on the words, Hashem Hayom. So when he told, uh, really, sorry, I probably said it a little bit out of order. Hashem Hayom. On this mountain, Hashem will be seen to his people. Hashem will appear to his people. And then Rashi said, what does it mean today? And I said, it means every day, every day that we're reading it. What is it? So there's two, definitely two things. Hashem Yireh, and the other thing is Baha Hashem Yireh. Hashem will, will choose this place for himself and Hashem will be seen. Now, what does it mean Hashem will be seen? It means we will go to Harabayat and we will, as it were, see the presence of Hashem. We can't see it physically because that's the nature of Hashem, but we can sense the presence of Hashem. And by the way, this probably is alluding to a specific mitzvah. What's the specific mitzvah? When do we have to go where Hashem is seen by us and we are seen by Hashem? No, close. It's the mitzvah of Re'iyah. At the Shlosh Ragalim. So at the Shlosh Ragalim is a mitzvah called Re'iyah, to be seen. So you have to go to Harabayat and you have to be seen in Harabayat, but it's actually a two way thing. Hashem sees us and we see him. Uh, and there's. saying the Bikarim statement? Uh, no, it's, uh, that's a different one. Uh, but that is, that is all tied up with the mitzvah of Chagiga, of bringing the festival offering. And it's all there in Masechet Chagiga. Interesting enough, the Rambam in Hilchot Beit HaBechira, which is the laws of the Bet Migdash, in the first halacha, the very opening of Hilchot Beit HaBechira, he says it's a mitzvah to build a Bet Migdash in a place which is where Hashem will, will rest his shechina and we will offer sacrifices and v'chogege shalosh pa'amim bashana. 
I haven't, I did write down the exact words. Hang on, the Chog again, Gimel Pa'amim Bashana. So what is the criteria for the place where you build the Bet Midash, says the Rambam? Two things. A place where Hashem will bring his Shekhinah and a place where we will celebrate Chagiga three times a year. And it can't be a coincidence that that's Rashi's interpretation of this of this uh, sorry, of this Pasuk. That Abraham is saying two things. The way Rashi explains it is precisely the criteria that uh, the, the Rambam says are needed to designate the place of the Bet Mikdash. The place of Hashem Shechina and the place where we will go three times a year. And that's exactly what Rashi says. And then he says, if you jump ahead, after what he said about Hayom, we're getting to where it says, Umidrash Agada. So if I'm jumping around a little bit. Umidrash Agada, Hashem Yireh Akeda Zu. Hashem will see this Akeda, Lisloach Li Israel, to forgive Israel, the whole Shana, every year, Ulahatzilam Min Haparanut and to save them from punishment. In order that it will be said, um, on this day, in all subsequent generations, in the mountain of Hashem, it is seen, the ashes of Yitzchak piled up and remaining, for an atonement. Wow, so there's a lot of stuff there. Okay, let's just clarify, first of all, this is Midrash, which means Rashi started off by saying, the simple Pshat is one thing, and now he's giving you the Midrash. So the simple Pshat was, Hashem will choose a place, and Bahar, on this mountain, Hashem Hashem will be seen by his people. Now it is a Midrash that in the mountain of Hashem, it will be seen. What will be seen? The ashes of Yitzchak. And therefore, this Akedah will be seen as a forgiveness for Israel, Bechol Shana, every year. Now, there's tons of stuff to say. I'm not going to really say everything, because there's really so much. First of all, Bechol Shana, every year. Now, you can read this as two ways. You can read it as all time, permanently. Or you can read it every year on a particular date every year, which makes more sense, because otherwise you would have said Olam. But every year it sounds like on an annual basis. So what's it referring to? Rosh Hashanah, when we are judged and we invoke the merit of the Akeda. The Akeda is the motif for Rosh Hashanah. We blow the shofar that comes from the horn of the ram that was offered instead of or in place of um, the uh, Yitzchak. So it fits very nicely that we draw from the zchut, from the merit of the Akeda, Bechol Shana, every year. Next thing to say is, what are the ashes of Yitzchak? Hang on a minute. Yitzchak didn't die. Something's gone very wrong with the story. The whole point was Yitzchak didn't die. So why are his ashes piled up there? Um, you might want to know about uh, Rashi on Vayikra Kafvav Men Bet and towards the end of the Tokacha, I won't give the whole story of what it's there, you might be familiar with this, but Rashi makes the point there that Yitzchak's ashes are piled up on the, on the altar. Same thing. Um, why does it mean Yitzchak's ashes are piled up on the altar? So you could say that Abraham's task um, wasn't just to offer up Yitzchak, which he didn't do, but it turned out he didn't have to do. But he did something else. 
he prepared Yitzchak as a sacrifice. He turned Yitzchak into a sacrifice. So that part was done. He did turn Yitzchak into a sacrifice. He didn't actually sacrifice him, but he turned Yitzchak into a sacrifice. That part was done. You can also see this, if you like, as a dichotomy between Abraham's task and Yitzchak's task. Um, Abraham's task was to bring a sacrifice. At the end of the day, he didn't because Hashem told him not to. What was Yitzchak's task? To be a sacrifice, and he was. Now, many times we talk about Yitzchak being an olat mima, being a perfect offering. It's not Rashi. May uh, no, it is actually Rashi. Sorry. Um, why Yitzchak is one of the avot who doesn't leave Eretz Yisrael. Abraham starts outside Eretz Yisrael. He pops over to Mitzrayim. Yaakov spends lots of time outside Eretz Yisrael. No problem. Yitzchak mustn't leave Eretz Yisrael. When Eliezer says, "What happens if the wife in in, in Haran doesn't want to marry? Doesn't want to come?" to here to marry Yitzchak, how about I send Yitzchak over there? Abraham says, no, 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 no. And, and we're told because he was an Ola to Mima, he was a perfect offering and he can't go outside of Israel. Who says he was a perfect offering? He was a perfect offering because he was turned into a sacrifice. So in that respect, the job was done. No Malach in the last minutes said, no, by the way, don't do this. The job was done. He was turned into a sacrifice, which by the way is uh, often brought as a, also a motif for Rosh Hashanah. Um, that's what we should do on Rosh Hashanah. We should present ourselves as a korban ourselves. There's, there's a lot of ideas about Rosh Hashanah that relate to that idea, but I won't go into that now. So in the sense that, Abra that Yitzchak did the job, or if you like, the first thing I said, Abraham didn't do the job of sacrificing, but he did the job of turning Yitzchak into a sacrifice. Or you can say Yitzchak himself turned himself into a sacrifice. How is that now represented in Hashem's eyes? He can see the ashes of Yitzchak before him. That's what Rashi says in Vayikra Kaf Vav Membet, and that's what Rashi says here. One more thing on this verse. There is a linguistic difference between the first and the second interpretation between Peshat and the Midrash, which might explain why Rashi brings the Midrash. And it is this. How do you read Bahar Hashem? So how would, before we go on to Rashi, how would you read the words Bahar Hashem? Okay, trick. Uh, you can answer. You can answer. answer. Uh, in the mountain uh, of God. Hashem's mountain. Okay, or, or the mountain. Yeah, Hashem's mountain. Hashem will see on a mountain. Okay, so yeah, that's the issue. And by the way, the trop, Amercha on Har and a Tipcha on Hashem implies that they are connected. It's a single unit, Har Hashem. If you notice, the first uh, explanation of Rashi splits them. Bahar Zer, Yira'er HaKadosh Baruch So it's if Bahar, comma, Hashem Yira'er. In the mountain, comma, Hashem will be seen. In the Midrash that Rashi brings, um, Bahar Hashem Yira'er, on the mountain of Hashem, it will be seen. What will be seen? Efrosha Yitzchak. So the technical, and I appreciate this is very technical compared to the more lofty ideas we've just been exploring, but the technical difference between the two is whether you read Ha Hashem as the mountain of Hashem or on the mountain, comma, Hashem will, dot, dot, dot. And you can argue that that's the problem in the first Peshat. The first Peshat, which is more Peshat orientated, there's no ashes of Yitzchak, there's no Rosh Hashanah. Nevertheless, it doesn't read quite so well because it splits up Ha and Hashem, which by the trot should go together. So it could be, but that's why Rashi brings the Midrash, which puts them together and says, on the mountain of Hashem is seen the ashes of Yitzchak. Could those ashes of Yitzchak 
be the ashes of the ram because now that ram yes. is Yitzchak. Ah, very good, very good. So I didn't mention that. Excellent. Exactly. If the ram is tachat for no, then the ashes of the ram are tachat Yitzchak. It would be even nicer to say that that is the same as Vach that was used in the Beit Hamikdash because but that doesn't work in Vayikra where we're in the Mishkan, not in the Correct, place. correct. It's not the same but yeah. but it is the same spot. Right, right. It, but not in the Mishkan. When not the in the Mishkan. Vayikra, well, it's not talking about the Mishkan, but, it's so if you have, no, it's not talking about the Mishkan. It's talking about, it's not the Mishkan in particular. Oh, so but but yeah, it could be the same. But uh, certainly, by the way, historically, it's the same spot on which the Mishkan was subsequently built and will be rebuilt. Okay, we can move on. It speeds up here. It's not rushy on every verse now. Pasuk Tet Vav. The Malach of Hashem called to Abraham a second time from Shemayim. No Rashi. Tet Zayin. And he said, by me, I have sworn, Na'um Hashem, says Hashem. Because you have done this thing. Talked about that already. Below, chasachta et bincha et yechidcha. And you have not held back your son, your only son. I will, we usually translate as surely bless you. So uh, we'll, we'll pause a minute because Rashi's going to talk about this. And I will multiply, surely multiply your seed. Like the stars of the heavens. And like the sand which is on the shore of the sea. And your seed will inherit the gate of your enemies. So lots of stuff there, but very little that Rashi actually comments on. So some of those phrases, um, I think, I didn't check this, I think that before Abraham has been promised, his descendants will be like the stars. And separately, he's been promised his descendants will be like the sand. And this time it puts them both together. I may be wrong on that. And Yirash Zarachat appears elsewhere. It's the bracha that Lavan gives to Rivka when she leaves to go off to meet Yitzchak um, in Kafdalad. Um, interesting, it's the same bracha there about this inheriting the gate of your enemies, um, just like it's given here. Um, well, since I mentioned it, so, so one explanation of what's going on there is Lavan and Betuel, if Betuel is still alive, are blessing Rivka that the bracha given to Avraham regarding his descendants should be through her descendants and not anybody else's descendants. So she should be the mother of those who inherit that bracha from Abraham. Anyway, Rashi doesn't talk about any of that, but what does Rashi talk about? So let's talk about the words varech avarachecha and vaharbe arbe. So in classical Hebrew grammar, this is called a infinitive absolute. Varech um, is the infinitive avarachecha means I will bless you. Um, harba arbe is something similar. When uh, in we, we're used to these verbs sometimes being doubled, and we translate them as "I will surely bless," "I will surely multiply," which obviously raises the question: What is the difference between blessing and surely blessing? I'm not entirely sure. It, it's some sort of emphasis. Sure, <laughs> very good. It's some sort of emphasis. But Rashi, from time to time, not consistently, actually says no. 
there's a reason for the repetition. And it's not just stylistic. It's not just the way Hebrew works. And here is one of those cases. On the words, Vareich avarachecha, achat la'av ve'achat ben. One for the father and one for the son. The reason the blessing is doubled is there's two blessings. So the question really to which I don't have an answer is why does Rashi sometimes comment on these emphasized doubled expressions? Uh, and other times he just sort of lets go. Uh, a classic example is whenever the death, death penalty, it's mot you mut. Uh, that's well, which we translate, it's the same grammatical construction and we translate it as surely die. And there my attempted joke works even better. What's the difference between dying and surely dying? The, you know, the result is really very much the same. That, and Rashi doesn't comment why it's not too much. That means it's like Bet Shemaim and, and it's like you die in both worlds. And in sometimes Halacha, like the base one that you'll only get punished in the world, in like Shemaim. Okay. Is that a suggestion or you've heard that as a Prashat? I haven't heard that yet. Okay. I'm Interesting. Sure okay. Okay. Yeah, could be. But my point is Rashi doesn't. But here he does. Here he says, that Hashem is blessing the father and blessing the son. Um, and this perhaps is, uh, at least in the world of Rashi, the acknowledgement that Yitzchak had a part to play as well. Uh, and this is one of the big questions in the story of the Akedah. We call it Akedah Yitzchak, but all the focus is on Hashem Nisa'ed Avraham, Hashem tested Avraham. Does, does Yitzchak get tested? Well, here, internationally, in two um, uh, conjunct... Uh, next to each other, Rashi's. <laughs> two Rashi's next to each other, Yitzchak's got his credit because the previous Rashi was about the ashes of Yitzchak are on the altar and now Abraham gets a bracha and Yitzchak gets a bracha and similarly on the next word it's not just Abraham's going to have his seed multiplied but Yitzchak will as well yes can I ask maybe a bit unrelated but why does it say your son your only son like why that um, okay, that probably relates to Pasat Bet. Um, I'm not I, I'm not sure I've got a really good answer. If you look at Pasuk Bet, the original test, the original command, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Yitzchak. And Rashi there said the reason for all these expressions is, again, it's another nice example of Rashi saying there's a conversation going on and we're only reading half the conversation and Rashi gives us the other half. So Hashem said, take your son. And Abraham said, I have two sons. Hashem said, take your only son. And Abraham said, I have, uh, this one is the only one to his mother and this one's the only one to his mother. And it sounds like there's a sort of different perspective between Abraham and Hashem. So I'm now coming to a possible answer. Abraham very much says, I've got two sons. Um, they're both, in a sense, their only son, because they're both the only sons to their mothers. But Hashem has already said, look, Yishmael, I'm going to look after Yishmael. I'm going to make him a great nation. But Hashem has been very clear that Yishmael is not your future. You, Abraham, that your future, the inheritors of your legacy, are going to be Yitzchak and his descendants. And not even all of Yitzhak's descendants. According to Rashi, that's been hinted, because there's going to be an Asaph who also gets sort of distilled out. And just by the way, that the whole Sefer Breshit is, and, and Menachem Langley talks about this, it's, it's a process of distillation. There was Adam Rishon. Well, let's start with Noah. Noah had three sons, but only one of them really counts in terms of the, the line that is going to lead to the Jewish future. Um, Abraham had two sons, and he had six more later on, but one of them has to be pushed away. 
Yitzchak has two sons. One of them has to be pushed away. Yaakov was the first one where there were no sons pushed away. So that's why we're now the Bnei Yisrael. We're the sons of Yaakov, not in the word. We're not called Bnei Yitzchak, we're not called Bnei Abraham. The distillation process is over by then. But my point is, maybe the answer to your question is in Hashem's eyes, is Yishmael counts, I'm not going to say counts for nothing, but is so insignificant compared to Yitzchak that Yitzchak is the only son. Okay? I'm sure there are other ways of answering that as well. Okay, let us move on. Pasuk Yud Tet. No, Pasuk, yeah, we've done Yud. No, Yud Chet. Continuing the bracha. No Rashi on this one. And all the nations of the world will be blessed in your descendants. Because you listened to my voice. And then, uh, interesting, that, that, I just realized that has echoes of what Hashem says to Yitzchak about um, Yitzchak. Hashem says, I'm going to bless Yitzchak because Abraham listened to my voice. In Perak Kaf Hey Asuk Hey, sorry Kaf Vav Hey Akev Asher Shema Abraham B'Koli. So I haven't got any comment on that, and Rashi's got any comment, but it's interesting. But again, you have the same expression: Hashem blesses Abraham because he listened to my voice, and then in Kaf Vav Hey, Hashem blesses Yitzchak because Abraham listened to my voice. And Rashi has got something to say about what it means. Listen to my voice. He says it there. He doesn't say it here. Abraham returned to his lads, and they arose, and they went together, to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. So I'm looking at the clock. We only have a few minutes left, um, but this, I'm going to go. This Rashi is not short, but it's straightforward. So we'll talk about this Rashi Yudtet. Interestingly, Rashi doesn't comment, as many others do, on the singularity of Abraham returning alone. Abraham returned alone, and the Midrash asks, where was Yitzhak? Um, and one of the answers is Yitzhak's ashes are on the altar, which links back to what Rashi said, but the Rashi doesn't bring that in this context. But presumably Rashi doesn't see this as a problem, and you can often have a singular verb actually with a plural subject. It's not unheard of in Hebrew, especially if there's a primary participant and a secondary participant. Best example is Vayavo Moshe Aaron El Paro. Over and over again, Vayavo, singular, Moshe and Aaron, plural, came to Paro. So Vayashav Abraham doesn't necessarily mean there was only one person. But Rashi says in the words Vayeshev Abraham Beershev, and the Rashi's got a problem, which he resolves just by saying, I'm not that bothered, because Vayeshev sounds like he settled. But Rashi has given us a whole chronology at the end of Perak Kaf Aleph about Rashi, the Abraham. He started in Hebron, he moved to the Polishtim, which is Beersheba, and then he moved back. And he moved back 12 years before the Akedah. And Rashi went through all this chronology in Perak Kaf Aleph Posset Lamadalat. But here there seems to be a problem because it says, Vayeshev Abram Be'er Abram dwelt in Be'er But according to Rashi's chronology, he wasn't in Be'er anymore. He wasn't living there. He was back in Hebron. So Rashi says on the words, Vayeshev Abram Be'er Lo Yeshiva Mamash. It wasn't really dwelling. Shaharei Be'er Hayo Yoshev. Because he was living in Hebron. So, and then he goes through a, a, a precede version of that same chronology. Shtemus Reishanim. 12 years before the Akedah, Yatsami Be'er Sheva. 
He left Beersheba, and he went to Hebron, as it said in the Pasuk that Rashi talked on, Avraham lived in the land of the Pelishtim for many days, which Rashi explained means more than the first time he spent in Hebron. And in Hebron, Rashi calculated that he was there for 25 years. So if he was in the land of the Pelishtim for more, that's 26 years. As I explained above. The point being that Rashi says that he, after 26 years in the land of Pelishtim, he went back to the place of Hebron. And he's been there for 12 years up till now. Um, when we get to the next Pasha, um, it's relevant to Rashi's comment on Pasuk Bet, Kaf Gimel Bet, by Yavo Avraham. After Sarah died, Abraham came. Where did he come from? And Rashi's relevant answer there is relevant to the discussion here. But the basic point Rashi's making is you might see the word Vayeshev, Abraham dwelt, meaning Abraham was living in Beersheba. That contradicts what I, Rashi, have said previously. So I'm going to tell you it doesn't. Because here, Vayeshev doesn't mean Yeshiva Mamash. It means he just popped in. Now, why he should pop in is an interesting question. Um, he's the uh, Akedah takes place in Yerushalayim. He's living, according to Rashi, in Hebron. If we know geography of Israel, that Beersheba is not on the way to Hebron. It's a major, major detail. Today, on Kavishesh, you can get to Hebron, you can get to Beersheba a bit quicker. But still, to go all the way down to Beersheba and then back to Hebron is a major way out of Abraham's journey. Rashi doesn't say why he went to Beersheba. There's speculation, someone to make a whole people about why he went to Beersheba. The point Rashi's making is this does not mean he went to live in Beersheba, because according to Rashi, he wasn't living there at the time. We will stop there. There will be no shear next week, but in Mitzvah Shem, uh, two weeks' time, we will continue. We will finish the Akeda and we will start Parshat Chaisara. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, Rabbi. Have a nice vacation. Thank you.